You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Yeah, good morning to you. If we've uh, not met before, my name is Matt Beloyan. I serve as, along with John, as the one of the pastors of the, the church. And um, we are, crazy enough, in the last few weeks of a series we've been doing this entire fall in the book of Judges. Um, so this morning, uh, and then next week, we're going to take two weeks to look at these four chapters devoted to the life, the account of Samson. Uh, and then after that, we'll take one final week to do the, all of the rest of the chapters in one week, which detail the the, uh, the, the full extent of the downward spiral into which Israel has been descending uh, throughout this book. Uh, there's not really a perfect way to break up these four chapters about Samson into two parts, but you'll notice as we get into these chapters this week and next, uh, there's actually kind of a dual ending. It's not quite as bad as Peter Jackson in Lord of the Rings, and like the, the like multiple endings. You're like, is it over yet? Is it not over but there are like dual endings in 15 and 16 that end with uh, Samson crying out to God and then the narrator making the statement that Samson uh, ruled over Israel, judged Israel for 20 years. Um, so we're going to use that kind of as our way to break it up. Today we'll look at sections of chapters 13 through 15, uh, which really detail his rise into this role of deliverer over the people of Israel. And then next week when we get to chapter 16, uh, we'll look at Samson's downfall Uh, which actually affords him a moment of even greater deliverance. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. We're going to begin in Judges 13, chapter chapter 13, verse 1, uh, page 213, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Skip ahead to verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahana Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. Chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. 
And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with a woman, with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to him, uh, to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. Skip ahead to verse 17. She wept, she being uh, the the wife or the soon-to-be wife of Samson. She wept before him the seven days that, that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Chapter 15. After some days, at the time of of wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes, probably jackals. It's the same word in Hebrew for foxes and jackals. 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go in the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And then after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we've come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. 
And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that being taught by you in your holy scripture, that our hearts and minds would be opened to receive all that leads to life and godliness and holiness. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So three things uh, that we will consider today from Judges 13 through 15. The deliverer no one asked for, the conflict no one asked for, and the salvation we long for. So first, the deliverer no one asked for. Uh, After a few hundred years of these cycles of the judges, it's now near the beginning of the 11th century BC. It's only about 50 years or so from this moment until a man named Saul will become the first king over the people of Israel. And with Samson, uh, we read some parallels with other judges that we've read about before in this book. But Samson is unique in that he is the deliverer no one asked for. And that's true in several ways. First, Israel did not ask for him. Chapter 13 begins with this now all too familiar refrain. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So there's rebellion among the the people. And the Lord gives Israel then into the hands of an enemy, in this case the Philistines, for 40 years. So there's retribution. But as we've seen actually in some other accounts as well, there's no repentance here. There's no repentance. There's no acknowledgement from the people of Israel of the evil that they have done. There's not even a cry of desperation. There's no pleading with God to intervene. Things have gotten so bad that Israel doesn't even really want to be rescued anymore. They've just accepted their their state, their status. So Israel isn't asking for a deliverer. Second, Samson's parents didn't ask for him. Manoah and his wife, as we read, are unable to have children. Uh, And this setup for an impossible birth is actually very similar to some other accounts in Scripture, most similar to the account of the prophet Samuel's birth, which actually would have been happening around the same time uh, in Israel's history. But in Samuel's story, uh, his mother, who's a woman named Hannah, pleads with God for a child and says that if God will indeed grant her a son, she will dedicate him to God's service. He will be set apart for God's work. We don't here see Samson's mother, or father for that matter, doing anything like that. Now, no doubt, they would long for a child, but we don't see them asking. We we find out quickly enough that this child will also be set apart for God as the prophet Samuel was. But it's not Manoah or his wife who initiate that or who, like Hannah, actually try to make a deal with God. So in the story of Samuel, it's 
God, give me a son and he will be yours. In the story of Samson, it's God saying, I will give you a son and he will be mine. And we didn't get to read much of chapter 13, but the overall picture that we get is that Manoah, and, and especially his wife, are faithful, God-fearing Israelites. Now, uh, one, one commentator in particular called them a model home, a beacon of light in the dark days of the judges. Uh, the one giant asterisk there, or at least question mark, is that they named their son Samson, uh, which means little son or son of the sun, uh, which if that's not a nod to a pagan sun god is precariously close to naming your, your son after a, a pagan deity. So not sure exactly how that fits in there. But as this plays out, as this plays out, put yourself for just a moment in, in their shoes, especially those of you who have kids and maybe adult children. Imagine the cost it is to Manoah and his wife to watch the tragic slash heroic disaster that is Samson's life. They, they weren't bargaining with God for a son. They didn't ask for a son who was set apart for some work that God was going to do. So Israel didn't ask for a deliverer. His parents didn't ask for a son that was set apart. But third, and something actually that seems to shape so much of his life, Samson himself didn't ask for this. He's the only judge actually in this entire book whom God calls before birth. In verse 5 of chapter 13, the angel of the Lord says that Samson will be a Nazarite to God. And if we were to go back to the book of Numbers, chapter 6, we would read about Nazarite vows. They include three primary provisions. Uh, no wine or fruit of the vine. No contact with dead bodies. Become unclean through contact with dead bodies. So no dead bodies. And no cutting your hair. But here's the thing. In the book of Numbers, Nazarite vows were voluntary. Not something that was imposed upon you, something that you willingly undertook yourself. And Nazarite vows were temporary. Uh, they were taken on for a limited period of time, sort of how you and I might fast and pray intentionally during the season of Lent or when we're faced with a, a major decision in our lives. Samson never took a Nazarite vow himself. It was prescribed by the angel of the Lord. It was imposed upon him. Uh, and it wasn't temporary. It was in effect, verse 7, from his mother's womb to the day of his death. Certainly there's some foreshadowing there in verse 7, which we'll get to next week. But during his life, Samson breaks all three stipulations of the Nazarite vow. Uh, in chapter 14, he's in the vineyards at Timnah. Vineyards is where fruit of the vine comes from. He's probably not having a soda in the vineyards of Timnah. And he almost certainly is drinking at his wedding feast. The, the word in the original language there is a type of feast that specifically includes an abundance of alcohol. He touched dead animals at least twice. The lion that he killed and then returned to to eat honey out of. And then the jawbone of a donkey, which the author points out was fresh. So not a brittle old skeleton, but a recently deceased donkey. And then, of course, most famously, which we see next week in chapter 16, uh, Delilah shaves his hair, shaves his head. We'll explore this more next week, but Samson is a reluctant deliverer. He's a reluctant deliverer. He's the deliverer who never wanted to be one. He doesn't want to be a Nazarite. It seems pretty clear from how he lives his life. He doesn't want to fight the Philistines, not really. He has world-class capacity for anger 
and vengeance and retribution. But when we zoom out and look at this account, Samson would rather sleep with Philistine women than fight their army. Samson would rather marry the Philistines than overthrow their rule of Israel. So in multiple ways, Samson is the deliverer no one asked for. And yet, he very clearly will be God's instrument of deliverance. As it says in chapter 13, verse 5, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, what does this teach us about God? As one commentator named Daniel Block puts it, the conception and birth of Samson declare emphatically God's refusal to let this nation die. Israel may be doing all in its power to destroy itself from within, but God must preserve this nation. The honor of his name and the cosmic mission of his grace is at stake. So before you and I wrestle with the specifics of Samson's disaster of a life, remember this, remember this. In the darkest days of this world, when there's no repentance, when there's no crying out for God's mercy, when no one is even asking for rescue, God is undeterred. He will preserve a people for himself. His purposes will never be thwarted. His name will never be snuffed out. And through Israel in the old covenant and through, through the church in the new, he will always be advancing, to use Daryl Block's phrase, the cosmic mission of his grace. And the way that God will do that in the days of Samson is by provoking conflict, which again, no one was asking for. So second, let's consider that. The conflict, the conflict no one asked for. Peace, harmony, unity, these are so often wonderful and desirable things. Even in the midst of this cultural moment and our culture's hostility and polarization, perhaps you, like me, have found yourself praying for these things a lot in your life right now, and rightfully so. The Apostle Paul will go on to write in the book of Romans chapter 12, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. But at this moment in the book of Judges, Israel has descended into a form of peace, a form of harmony that amount to outright rejection of God and outright betrayal of their own identity. Israel has been set apart by God. They are a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. God has set his hand, God has set his heart upon them in order to reveal himself and his grace to the world. But Israel is now completely indistinguishable. They have fully acclimated to and embraced Philistine rule. And we see this most clearly in Judges chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. So look back at those verses. This is perhaps the lowest point in the entire book of Judges, which is saying something, because there are some low points. This might be the lowest one. Samson is hiding out. The Philistines raid Lehi. And the men of Judah ask the Philistines... Why have you come up against us? It's like, hey guys, what's the deal? I thought we, were, thought we were good. There's this assumption of peace and harmony. There's no need for the Philistines to be violent or to make raids upon Israelite land because Israel, actually the tribe of Judah even, who are supposed to be the leaders of, of Israel, have rolled over and embraced subjugation. 
And then in verse 11, the men of Judah go find Samson. And when they find him, they utter some of the most faithless words that we find in all of scripture. Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Remember who these people are. These are the holy set apart, miraculously delivered, perpetually rescued and preserved people of God. That statement is utter rejection of their very identity. And those who have been set free from their slavery in Egypt and brought into the land that God promised are now embracing slavery once again. Samson's violence has afforded them a chance to recalibrate, to remember who they are, to remember whose they are. But instead of renouncing their enemy, instead of revolting against this 40-year yoke that's been placed upon them, they instead rebuke Samson. See, this is the conflict no one was asking for. Israel didn't cry to God for help. They were apparently fine with this arrangement. Uh, They possibly would have remained that way indefinitely, even forever. But that would have meant the end of Israel as a set-apart people of God. And the vessel of God's revelation, the vessel of God's mission in the world would become no different from any other pagan nation. It would have meant the triumph of evil, the power of sin having the final word. And so when no one was asking for a conflict, God provoked one. When no one was asking, God stirred one up. Ultimately, our salvation is being reconciled with God. It's being brought into a covenant relationship of peace with God. But think about this. In a fallen world, in a world that's been fractured and corrupted by sin, salvation actually begins by shattering illicit peace, by blowing up our utterly devastating allegiances with sin and with the enemies of God. That's how salvation has to start. And Judges chapter 14, verse 4, there's such a key line in this whole account. Samson sees this Philistine woman, tells his parents, go get her for me, which is the language of possession, lust, not to mention just completely disrespectful to his parents, something unheard of among the people of Israel. His parents, who are seeking to be faithful, try to talk him out of it. But behind the scenes, verse 4, the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. As a scholar named Michael Wilcock writes, Israel and the Philistines at this point are so interlocked that even the Lord can find nothing to get hold of to pry them apart. He uses Samson's weaknesses, therefore, to bring about the relationship with this irresistible girl from which so much ill feeling will flow. When there's not a willing deliverer, God will raise up an unwilling one, even an unwitting one. And Samson's demand to have this woman as a wife is a lit match that's about to ignite the fuse that will forever explode peace with the Philistines. So what follows there in the rest of chapter 14 and into chapter 15 are these rapid cycles of violence and retaliation. The Philistines manipulate Samson's wife to solve this riddle, and so Samson kills 30 Philistines and takes their clothes to pay off his bet. In his anger, then he just leaves. He just leaves the wedding feast. So in his sudden absence, his wife's father gives her to his best man. And so Samson responds, rationally, I guess, in his mind, 
capturing 300 jackals or foxes, whatever they might be. Most scholars tend to think it's jackals because they're pack animals and easier to catch. And Samson doesn't strike us as a particularly patient man in his retaliation. Waiting to catch 300 foxes would, would take a while. So they think it's jackals. He ties their tails together in pairs with a torch in between and then turns them loose in the Philistine fields and orchards, burning down all their produce. Okay, so Samson was not the founder of PETA. We might say it that way. This is not a PETA-approved form of retaliation. In response, then, the Philistines burn his wife and father-in-law to death. And so Samson, quote, strikes them hip and thigh with a great blow. Uh, we don't know exactly what that meant, but almost certainly it involved Samson killing a lot more Philistines. The Philistines then raid Lehi to capture Samson, that account that we looked at just a moment ago. And so Samson lets the men of Judah bind him, tricking the Philistines, and then breaks free, grabs this fresh jawbone of a donkey, and kills single-handedly a thousand Philistines. There aren't many moments in a sermon where I get to quote Ron Burgundy from Anchorman, but this is one of them. Boy, that escalated quickly. That escalated quickly. That got out of hand in a hurry. You see, though, how God has interrupted a peace that should never have existed in the first place. Should never have existed in the first place. And after this, there is no turning back. It escalates further in chapter 16, which then sets the stage for this ongoing hostility between Israel and the Philistines that persists into the monarchy, into King Saul's day, famously into the, the battle between David and Goliath and all the way to David's ultimate defeat and subduing of the Philistines in 2 Samuel chapter 8. There are many moments in our lives to pursue peace, to pursue harmony. But there are also moments in our lives to blow up counterfeit, wicked forms of peace. And whether we want this burden or not, to be the set-apart people of God means that we will live our lives in conflict with those who are opposed to God and his kingdom. That's actually the apart aspect of being set apart. Or as James will go on to write centuries later, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Michael Wilcock, that same scholar, goes on to write this. He says, There is no such thing as harmonious coexistence between the church and the world. For where there is no conflict, it is because the world has taken over. Now, this doesn't mean that, that you and I are to be antagonistic or hostile. We're to seek to embody the truth in love, to answer people always with gentleness and respect, to be people of courage and compassion, people of grit and grace. But there is a fundamental conflict between the ways of God, and the ways of the world. Between life according to the spirit and life according to the flesh. And in those places, to pursue harmony or peace, to try to sweep the distinctions under the rug, the conflict under the rug, does not advance God's mission in the world. It actually hinders it. It actually puts obstacles in people's way. It blinds people to the differences that they need to see in order to look upon Jesus and live. In his commentary on Judges, Tim Keller points out some ways that we are prone to embrace illicit peace as God's people in the world instead of the necessary conflict. One is to reject the supernatural parts of Scripture, 
depending on the, the circles in which you run and live and work, it can feel like too high of a hurdle to square the supernatural parts of Scripture with science. So in order to maintain relevance to culture, you might be inclined to just say, well, the supernatural stuff isn't really real or doesn't really matter anyway. It's just really the ethics and the, the principles of the Christian faith. But if we lose the supernatural, we also lose Jesus' resurrection. And if we lose Jesus' resurrection, Christianity is wrong, our faith is in vain, and we are to be pitied more than anyone else in the world. What's the point of pursuing the ethics if that's not real? Another example. Liberal or progressive Christians often accept modern sexual ethics. Don't practice things like church discipline. Don't preach Christ alone as the only way to experience God's salvation. But Jesus, in his own life and ministry, preached about judgment. He preached about moral virtue. He said that no one would come to the Father except through him. And to believe these things and to say these things will create conflict. On the other hand, more conservative or cultural Christians often seem more committed to moralism or to tradition than the actual gospel and its implications. Jesus, of course, in his life and ministry, talked a lot about justice, about the dangers of wealth, about love for the poor. He called his people to love those whom society had deemed unlovable. And for us to believe things like this and to say things like this will always create conflict as well. Keller goes on to write, it is the mercy of God that he does not allow the world to love the church for very long. It's the mercy of God that he does not allow the world to love the church for very long. And that is exactly what God is doing in shocking ways, no doubt, in the account of Samson. When no one asks for conflict, when his people have embraced this illicit peace, God's going to stir up conflict. And think about it. See it. Let's, let's learn to see it this way. This is God's mercy. This is how God will pursue and reclaim and renew his people. He first has to pry apart what was never meant to go together. Let's ask ourselves this week questions like this. Where am I inclined to embrace illicit peace with the world? Where am I inclined to embrace illicit peace with the ways of this world? What necessary conflict would I rather deny or sweep under the rug? And then maybe in discussion with friends, family, or your Bible study, continue to ask yourself, how do you perceive God stirring up conflict between the world and the church? And where you perceive that, how will you respond? So Samson is the deliverer no one asked for. This is the conflict no one asked for. Third and finally, let's talk about the salvation we long for. In the history of Israel, in the history of the church, uh, there have been, there are, there will be times of utter darkness. Times when seemingly no one is asking for a deliverer. When no one is interested in the necessary kinds of conflict. But thanks be to God, when his mission of grace is at stake, God will not wait to be asked. He will not wait to be asked. In our helplessness, when we can't even think clearly enough to want it, God will find a way to bring the salvation we need. Our hearts, 
along with all of creation, are groaning, are waiting with eager longing, the Apostle Paul writes, for redemption and salvation. Even if in this moment we are blind to that, even if in this moment we are suppressing that longing that actually exists deep within each of our souls. Samson is an utterly flawed, deplorable man. You have to do some crazy biblical gymnastics to find anything prescriptive or worthy of emulation in his life. At least, at least to this point. Even his prayer to God at the end of chapter 15 is more of a demand than a prayer. It's as though he thinks God now answers to him. God, I've done this great act of salvation. Where's my water? Where's my water? But herein lies this complicated, tragic, and yet amazing deliverance of God. Samson is disrespectful, lustful, womanizing, angry, violent, and arrogant. And he is completely responsible before God for the immorality of his own life. Inexcusable for how he violates God's commands in his Nazarite vow. And yet, at the same time, he is very clearly God's chosen instrument of deliverance. It is God's own spirit, we read in this account, that stirs Samson, that gives him his incredible strength, that rushes upon him three times to kill the lion, to kill the 30 Philistines for their clothes, to kill a 1,000 Philistines with a jawbone. Now, we will, if we're honest with ourselves, and we can, and we should even, struggle with that. We should struggle with that. How could God, by his spirit, empower this? How could this guy be the instrument of God's deliverance? We can struggle with that. What we can't do is try to put God into a box. To shrink God down to fit into our nice, comfortable paradigms. And by this point in the book of Judges, should any of this really surprise us? Actually, yes. Actually, yes. The depravity of people shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we've seen that now over and over again in this book. That shouldn't surprise us anymore. God using incredibly flawed people and horrible circumstances, that shouldn't surprise us anymore. That's throughout this book. That's throughout all of Scripture. That's throughout all of our lives. What should surprise us is God's unrelenting commitment to preserve and purify a people for himself. What should surprise us is the lengths that God is willing to go to accomplish the rescue of his people. We will see next week that God breaks Samson. He drives Samson low to a place of dependence and ultimately faith. Not in a way that for us is completely satisfying. But church, this is actually the entire point of the life and the deliverance of Samson. It is that we need a better deliverer. We need a better deliverer. God help us if Samson is the answer to our longing for salvation. He brings deliverance in some sense, but he's a moral disaster. We need a deliverer we can follow. We need a deliverer we can emulate. We need a deliverer we can unashamedly proclaim is worthy of worship and following. One who will not rescue God's people reluctantly or in spite of himself, but by his own willing service and sacrifice. One who will not merely, as Samson does, begin the process of deliverance, but one who, Hebrews chapter 7, is able to save to the uttermost. One who, Philippians chapter 1, will bring to completion the good work he has begun. 
Are you ready for Advent yet? Are you ready for Advent yet? That Savior, men and women, is coming. And his name is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, he will save his people from their sins. In the midst of another moment of darkness, when no one seemed to be asking, a light dawned. And unto us, the beloved and pursued people of God, unto us, the recipients of God's unrelenting grace and mercy, unto us, a child will be born and a son will be given. Even when we aren't asking for a deliverer, God will provide one. Even when we have no stomach for conflict, when we prefer the counterfeit peace and harmony with the world, God will provoke the necessary conflict. Why? Because the deepest part of your soul, of my soul, is longing for salvation. In Jesus Christ, it is held out to you. So will you turn to him? Will you fix your eyes upon him? Will you follow him? He alone is able to save to the uttermost those who through him draw near to God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we need a better deliverer than Samson. And you have provided that deliverer in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you preserved your people through horrible and wicked days, such as the days of the judges. But thank you that we don't have to settle for Samson either. That his life in all of its flaws, in all of its sinfulness, points to the sinless Savior who is Jesus. And we pray this morning now for the grace to believe what we have heard and the grace to live in ways that honor you above all else. Give us eyes that see through Samson and see Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.